Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Remembering Us, the storytelling of everyday people dedicated to racial justice and healing. This is Lisa. Hey, everyone. This is Ellery. And um, we just want to thank you uh, for everyone who shared our podcast, listened to different episodes, talked about them, um, the good, the bad, the ugly. We would love feedback uh, because that's that's why we are doing this to interact and to create conversation. Also, we are we have just created our our Instagram. So we got Remembering Us podcast. Follow us, please. Like our posts or comment, share anything. So we'll be there. Remembering Us podcast on Instagram. And we also want to mention if you are able to support in any amount at all, we're gathering contributions. Not only to compensate our guests of color who are bringing their stories and expertise to the podcast, um, also to cover our editing and posting software. And we want to gather contributions to BIPOC-led organizations who are dedicated to racial healing. First, namely Jubilee Justice, who has informed a lot of the work, especially that our co-host Lisa Dean here has done. So please check out the link in our description for more info on that. So in this series, we are going to be focusing on reparative genealogy. You all will hear different stories from people who are doing genealogical or ancestral research that are tracing their lineage back to the connection of slavery in the United States. And then specifically how through this process of truth telling are making reparations. We're really honored today to be talking to two women that I know through Jubilee Justice who are both deeply dedicated and actively engaged in genealogy and reparations. So after discovering that she was a descendant of slaveholders, Lottie Lieb Dula, a retired financial strategist, founded reparationsforslavery.com which is a portal for white families wishing to walk the path of racial healing through engaging in direct repair. Lottie is also a founding donor of Reparations Circle Denver. And Brianna Cuffey is a strategist, advocate, and future author based in Annapolis, Maryland. She leverages her political expertise, teachings from her elders and history to help others understand the complexity of Blackness in the United States. Brianna is involved with Coming to the Tables Annapolis chapter and is the racial equity advisor for reparationsforslavery.com, which you will be hearing about a lot today. Yes. So as our tradition on each episode, we have a short grounding before we dive into the conversation today. So taking a quick minute to settle into our space, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, taking a moment to feel into our body. Breathing length into our full body from head to toe, feeling that length as our dignity. Feeling that full spaciousness from head to toe. And breathing into our wits from shoulder to shoulder, from side body to side body. A full space in between. Feeling that as our connection, our 
sensing the space around us. If there are any others around us, feeling that connection through our width. And breathing into our back body. Feeling our shoulders open up and fall back. Our chest open. Feeling our whole backside. Feeling this as those who have carried the work before us. Have got us to where we are right now. Our ancestors, our ancestors in the work, and everyone that has come before us. And we breathe into our front body, where we are now and where we are looking towards our purpose in front of us. And breathing into the whole space that makes up our body and our spirit. Feeling in and taking that whole space. Taking a moment, slowly making our way back. Taking all the time you need. Welcome, Brianna, Lottie. We are so honored, excited, looking forward to being in conversation with both of you. One of the ways that we like to start our conversations is with some kind of origin story. So what we were thinking of is asking you two the origin story of how you met. It's my favorite story. Mine too. <laughs> We tell it a little bit differently. Bree tells the, the, the nice version, actually. I tell the, the not so nice. You go first. I will start by saying I was swindled into meeting. Uh, we met at the Coming to the Table National Gathering. It was 2018. And it was happening in this remote part of Virginia. The part of Virginia I generally avoid as a Marylander and as a black person, um, but I got convinced uh, by some members of my local group to go. And so I made the drive uh, that Friday. I told myself I was leaving first thing Saturday morning. Um, and so I went and could say I went and stayed a night and I was going to leave. And Saturday morning and going through the kind of uh, like agenda for the day, um, I had saw one of the first workshops of the day was on reparations. And so I'm thinking, oh, we're talking, talking about reparations early in the morning on this day. Let me stick around for this. It was centered around a handful of people talking about the way they make reparations. So one of the people being a woman from my local group about how she has literally quit her job and does social justice and racial justice work full time and has been for the last few years. 
And then, you know, some white and black duos that have made the connection and being linked descendants and, you know, what that has meant for their families and projects they're working on. Um, um, and so while everyone was saying all these great things about how they love that, um, that people are, you know, diving into this socio-political work and I'm really trying to make change. Um, I stood up and was hey, making change makes you pennies. Um, at that point, I worked in the state legislature and had two side jobs. Um, and so I was like, you know, for me, reparations would be, you know, why people paying off my student loans, paying down my credit card bills, car payment, like relieving financial anxiety. My family wasn't able to accumulate, so let alone pass down wealth. So if you could just pay off the debt and me to zero, I'll take it. And so it, it went along after that. And Lonnie was one of the first people that came up to me after that. Well, wait, you got, you got to say what I you got to say what I said, though. And go and continue through the uh, the circle. Lottie spoke up and, and mentioned how she brought up how she wanted to start this website. You know, she wanted to have a place for white people to basically figure out kind of what was wrong with white supremacy, essentially, and get to understand that reparations are necessary and make them cough up the coins. That's my phrasing, not hers. To get them to actually do something with their money. Um but Lottie got up and was like, I'm looking for people to help me. I have a vision for it. Raise your hand. Talk to me after. I'm ready to go. And everyone was just kind of like, crickets. Let's think of silence. You um, can hear a pin drop. I mean, I said, who's with me? And nobody was with me. And I thought, oh, I, I'm such an arrogant person for having raised all this. And I felt very limp and kind of. And I skulked. I remember I sort of skulked out of the room after that. And, and it was completely different. She was very much was like ready to leave the charge. And then that very much just deflated after that. Yeah. And so, but, and then afterwards, Brie rolled up on me. Okay. Now, let me just say, okay. So, Brie, and I'm twice Brie's age. We live in different parts of the country, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We do have a couple things in common. We're both short. But but Brie, thank goodness, Brie is shorter than I am. But our voices are tall. But our voices are tall. That's right. But what was so interesting, so Brie, she looks at me and she says, well, aren't you high and mighty with, with your fabulous idea, which nobody in there seems to support? She said, what about people like me? Let's really discuss this. I have six figures of debt. I'm working these three jobs. I don't have a hope in hell to get a house, to have a normal life, all the things that you enjoyed. What about me? Now, one thing, Brie and I, you'll notice in our, our introductions, the word strategic. We both are strategists. So my little strategy uh, gears started pushing. I thought, oh, here's my partner right here. This is, oh, I want to work with somebody who's passionate. So I asked Brie, I said, well, what if I start working on your student debt? And would you help me get this darn portal up and going? Brie was a little bit, you were a little bit surprised that I just took you up on the offer. Well, especially because I, I mean, I come in a little strong and a little is very wrong. I come in very strong. But especially with my being very type A and a Virgo and all those things, I'm like very much I'm just like, if you're going to do this, white lady, you need to be done right and done right the first time. That's what I love about working with you is just you have absolute clarity. We have a lot in common considering how different we are in almost every 
aspect of where our lives have brought us. But we were both very strategic thinkers. We're just out there doing the work. And Bree's been just absolutely instrumental. You know, I can visualize the success and then reverse engineer how I got there and then build a vision from the ground up. However, there's certain things I can't see. I don't have the black perspective. And so I build stuff and then I send it to Bree and say, okay, what am I missing? What did I get wrong? Um, and then she fills in the blanks. And so, for instance, we've been able to build out a number of remarkable curricula from two very different perspectives. We have a, a different, we're of different generations, everything. And so we kind of have the gamut of what needs to be in, in our curricula. So especially like when we did our reparative genealogy course, which is, you know, the guts of that are on the portal, you know, Bree is e easily able to fill in. Here is a um, perspective. Here's how uh, these techniques are different than what uh, what white people do in terms of genealogy. So in, and we just compare totally different approaches to things, but we always come to the same place just from different directions, which I find just so, well, it's, it's changed my life. Knowing Bree Meeting Brie changed my life. I'm not the same person that I was. So this is a perfect segue into, I've heard so much from Lisa about how you two have used your genealogical research to tell stories and influence people in circles and spaces to dive deep into their own family legacies. And what, what was the process for each of you in doing your genealogical research and how has it affected who you are and what you do? I feel like Lottie should go first. I feel like we came to it from opposite directions. So it's yeah, true for with us very much being opposites. We, we came to it in, in opposite ways. I, I came to this work um, in, in ways, uh, in a really unusual way. Unlike many people who are reparationists, I was not a racial justice advocate. I was a typical middle-aged white person who, uh, a liberal, but a fiscal conservative. And so I had no, I lived in a white bubble. I had all white friends, all white family, of course, work, neighborhood, all of that. And I had no contact with anybody who wasn't white like me. And I was a staunch supporter of the meritocracy argument, the bootstrap argument, all of these things. I thought it is up to each one of us to make our lives go. And if you don't have what it takes, it isn't my problem or my fault. And I had very strong views. Um, and at the same time, I held myself up as a progressive. It's interesting how this is very typical, especially of white women. Really, really typical and classic. So <clears throat> the other thing that's typical and classic about most, most white people just in general is that because history has been erased, by groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and my mother was a member of that group, I had no idea about what my heritage. I grew up in California where slavery is like literally one paragraph in a textbook. I knew nothing about our Southern heritage other than knowing, knowing that, oh, somebody's uniform was in a museum and somebody else was a patriot and this and that and the other. So I just had a very, very we call it a very whitewashed idea of history. After my mother died, uh, my, also, my family also had a very bad habit of being hoarders and they would just get bigger and bigger houses and not, nothing was thrown away. So I finally inherited and said, okay, this all stops with me. I'm going through every last box and we're just going to get rid of this stuff or do something. 
So I, I always started going through the boxes. And one of the first boxes uh, I found was this, I found this little black book. And this is the black, the little black book that changed my life. I started paging through it. I mean, I tell this, Ray and I actually present this history as, as a, we do a presentation on the racial wealth gap. But we basically recount our family's histories and we, we show exactly how the racial wealth gap expresses itself in both my life and my family's trajectory, upward trajectory for 400 years and Bree's being held back. We show mechanically how it works. But this book, basically, I looked through it. I First thing I noticed was this is a book of records, somebody's business records. This person's a finance person. I'm, I grew up in a family of artists who just scorned my skills and made fun of me. Here's the ancestor that I, that I can relate to right here, this guy. So I'm paging through and going, uh-oh. Hmm. Let's see. I see farm to- lists of farm tools. I see all kinds of land parcels. And then all of a sudden, oh, man, this is a cotton plantation and it's in Mississippi. And finally, I came to the two pages that just that absolutely changed my life. Um, pages 27 through 30 were a list of 44 people my family had enslaved. This businessman, this <laughs> man with perfect penmanship uh, and great financial skills uh, that I instantly identified with just looking at the records. He was an enslaver. And the juxtaposition of feeling an intense identity with the person as soon as I held their book and discovering what they had done, who they were, was it was it was like uh, having a cold bucket of water or ice water running through your veins. It just stunned me. And within 24 hours, I decided, oh, I need to know who I am. Clearly, I don't know who I am. And I don't, I don't know U.S. history. I don't know anything. That's why I discovered coming to the table and decided to go to the National Gathering because I realized I need to be with other people who are doing this work, who have been working way longer than I have. I'm brand new. And there's a lot that I need to find out. So that's what started my journey. And that's so different from, from Bray's journey. So I, I do come from a family of genealogists. In fact, my great-grandmother was one of the Mayflower's uh, main genealogists. In fact, she stood on the platform when, um, oh, geez, it was um, one of their uh, new buildings in 1907 was at Plymouth was uncovered and the president was there and she stood on the stage with him. So I, in fact, that's sitting right right here. I have the news article right on my wall to, to never forget who my family are. So um, the thing is with, with typical genealogy, um, typical genealogy keeps people apart. We use, we use our lineages as weapons and we, keep, we put people down. We're not part of our groups. We keep people apart. So Bree and I have coined the term reparative genealogy to begin to unwind that harm and bring people back together again so that we're telling the same story. Our stories are converging. So from my end, I've had exposure to our family genealogy for as long as I can remember. I would say the elder that raised me was our community historian. Uh, she knew everyone's family's origin stories, migrations. She was our church historian. 
And she was our school's historian. And, um, she she had everything, newspapers, magazines, everything. And so um, she was very big on us knowing um, who our ancestors were. A lot of our elders lived to be pretty old. And so a lot of them remember a lot of them. Our families migrated from three different parts of Maryland together and converged in this one place. Um, a lot of our families have been in proximity to with, with each other, whether that be as free people or on a plantation since at least the 1840s, and then all converged into this one new town in the 1870s. But I have always known back to my, they would be my third great-grandparents. So I, I've always known at least that far back. Um, and, and a few years ago, my kind of intuition and kind of my dabbling into ancestral reverence and whatnot had kind of my own outer body, but very much an inner body experience um, that very much led me to down the rabbit hole, as Laddie and I call it, of ancestry. And that was really the only thing that made that energy, that feeling go away. And I knew by the energy exactly who and what it was. And I would try reading. I would try binging something on Netflix, staring at the wall. Like I tried everything. And, and every time I would just end up on my laptop looking up stuff on Ancestry and trying to tease stuff out. And they would finally kind of leave me alone where they're like, great, now you're doing what we need you to do. Thanks. Of course, that was after I spent like five hours in the depths of ancestry looking at census records and city directories and everything else. Um, never mind that I was up till two and three in the morning. The message came across. And so I have kind of just gone from there. Um, I've picked up kind of being the community historian since about, since probably the pandemic started. So since about spring, summer 2020. That really catapulted into where I am now, um, starting with doing a write-up about my grandfather. And so my write-up actually started with him in the wake of all of the conversations around uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and people really talking about policing, all the think pieces and Facebook statuses that were coming out at the time. I couldn't really say anything without mentioning and framing it around the fact that I'd always known that my grandfather integrated our county police department. So how I came to understand the point of police um, and how they were supposed to act in communities was vastly different than how I experienced them and especially how different my brother experiences them as someone who was a foot and some change taller than me and a wider build and who was constantly on the road interacting with police. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask Grandpa. I'm going to ask him all the questions I can think of. But that did turn into me interviewing other elders from our community. So I was like, well, what else don't we know? Um, I had very much confined my grandfather to his house and forced him into interviewing. Um, given the pandemic, I was like, look here, old man, you're not going anywhere. I'm going to come over and you can't escape. I'm going to ask you questions and you're going to answer them. And if you don't want to answer them, we will sit across from each other, staring at each other all afternoon um, until you decide to answer. Um, and so I learned a lot about our family, um, you know, him as a kid, his interactions and, and relationships with family members. I never got to meet his interactions with our community and the 
And then wherever he had blind spots or like gaps in memory, he gave me names of people to reach out to. And that catapulted into me interviewing just shy of 50 people over four generations. Uh, from my oldest interviewee, he just turned 101 last July. And the youngest just turned, I think, 53 in September, like capturing all of those memories and interactions, because otherwise our community doesn't exist. When you look at Maryland history, our county history, um, even now the city of Annapolis history, which we're a part of, we don't exist, even though we were 40% of a population and it was an integrated town from right after emancipation to today. And so my genealogy really stems from being shaper aware of my community and my family's relation to our community and to the land. But I mean, it's brought me to the point now where I can say my family has been here at least 220 years. And that's how far back I've been able to go. And so um, I'll stop myself there. What I want to add one little detail, you know, so Brie and I have been working together since uh, <clears throat> 2018 on various I mean, and you can see how far down the rabbit hole we go we can we can talk minutia level for hours to the point where people have like passed out it's like no more please no. Oh, stop it's just endless the amount of detail that you can get into and but brie and i love to text each other you know we go through phases where we're texting each other every day other times it's every few weeks or whatever and one day i was texting brie and i thought hey or occurred to me, I wonder if I have any ancestors uh, where, you know, in Maryland. And, hey, I'll, I'll check. She says, oh, well, uh, let's see what kind of last names you've got. And I said, well, I've got some Calverts. And then she starts cackling. I get a phone call right away. She's Calvert. Really? Calvert? Just the street I'm on is Calvert right now. <laughs> These are the founders of the province of Maryland. And the biggest slaveholders there there ever have been. Uh, I in believe the area. my phrasing was OG colonizers of my state. Yeah, exactly. Point of clarification. So she's laughing and, and, and rolling her eyes at, at how little I know. I mean, I, I'm I'm a West Coaster. I live in Colorado now, and I don't know anything about Maryland. And I'm a little bit historically lazy, we'll say. So what I discover after going down the rabbit hole is that it's possible that my ancestors may have enslaved Bree's ancestors. You know, our ancestors are living, you know, a stone's throw away from each other. I think when Sharon Morgan did her research, it was a difference. I think I was up maybe like 20 miles. Yeah, exactly. And so I just, what I want to tell people listening is that when you form a bond with someone, You'll, you, you may never know what has brought you together and how important the work you do together may be, especially across race, across space, across time, age, all these different things that separate us. In fact, Bree and I have a connection that may go back hundreds of years. We'll never know the full story. And yet we've been brought together to do this work. So I just, I, this part of our story is really important. 
we were in our fourth year working together when I just made this offhanded, ridiculous comment. Hey, I wonder who got any ancestors in Maryland. And so follow your intuition when you're doing this work. The ancestors, if you keep your ears open, will lead us to where we need to go. So powerful. And you can feel it in how both of you share your stories that you can dial into a moment because those are the moments that lead us to the next thing, to the depths and pull us away from the screens and the distractions and the busyness and the got to work and make money and all these things to tune into those moments. The depths is so impactful. And it also, I mean, it was so powerful is how hearing both of you know, your story, the different places, different times across history, across time, across space, like you're saying, Ladi, what is really standing out to me is how in this process, history is always in us, is always moving with us or literally moving us. And, and so what you're speaking to is paying attention to those inklings of where you're attracted to what is being called and and then also in all of this what is standing out to me is like you know I'll cut, oh, so much okay so one thing is all the different ways that we can approach this understanding who we are in the world and time and actual tools and there's the passing down of oral histories and and then the actual hours online, which I totally relate to, Brie, oh my gosh, staring at the wall after and during. And wow. And what I found really powerful is that in this whole evolution of you two coming together, understanding your histories and then the links um, possibly between you two, but now coming into the world and you're sharing these stories specifically with the purpose of understanding the racial wealth gap. So I'm curious about how having these personal stories, how you find that um, impactful, important, valuable in understanding our societal inequities and injustices. How does storytelling, the way that you two are presenting them, how has it been useful or, or important? That's always been a part of it for me. It's how um, it's how my elder did her work. She was big in civil rights works uh, locally um, and with the state, um, more specifically with political campaigns. And then, of course, she she was at the original March on Washington and she helped lead and organize sit-ins here for integration. She integrated our elementary school. And so a lot of the way I approach this work is the 21st century version of what she was doing. I'm just having a lot more tools at my disposal. Storytelling was a big part of it for her, especially with knowing our community history. So in depth, being able to pinpoint, okay, well, this is how we started. This is how we stagnated. But it, it very much set the foundation for how how I do things. And that is the big contributor to my sense of self. That's the huge part for me around storytelling as well. Um, I talk about it in a way that makes it seem like it's my own memory. I know it's in my bones. I got it a child orally from the elders. And with having technology and stuff on the computer, I can piece together the paperwork with their experience and get a full narrative of it. And that's always worked for me. So 
one of the side jobs I had a couple of years ago during the lunch break, someone thought it was a great idea to put on Fox News and the TV in the lunchroom. Not a great idea when there's people like me in the lunchroom, but they learned that that day. But it turned into this conversation around policing and, of course, black and white directions and racism, liberal brainwashing, you know, the talking, the bullet points we were constantly hearing about and seeing now. And a couple of my black coworkers were kind of going back and forth with people. I could sense my one of my coworkers in particular getting frustrated. And I just gave her a look. I was like, just let it go. Let it go. Be done. It's fine. Um, and so the next person that said something literally mentioned how, you know, well, my parents X, Y, and Z. And I said, oh, okay. Well, what do I then tell my grandfather who integrated our county police department and was a part of policing the area you live in and was treated like trash by the people in your very neighborhood? who he vividly remembers now as an old man and actively avoids interacting with him, but can tell you exactly what they've got going on in their lives these days. Keeps tabs on them. I was like, what do I tell him? How does that lend itself to the fact that he couldn't arrest white people the first two years he was an officer? Um, or how the people in his, the other officers in his precinct treated him differently and he didn't get the perks of being an officer. Because I think her... But they were talking about lent itself somewhere around the, you know, supporting police officers and, you know, the thin blue line and that and all of that. And I was like, OK, but um, people treated my grandfather very much like the black man that he was first and disrespected him being in a policeman's uniform. So, you know, how what do I tell him? Make that make sense for me. And it was just silence. <laughs> I would add what's so interesting for me, working with Brie, I mean, she has inherited through oral history, oral tradition in her family, a true history of this country, lived history. In my family, that's all been erased. We have no idea who we really are as white people, especially people of my generation and older. You know, we, we've bought a bullshit story. So there are people who may not be able to hear what Brie has to say. But if Brie and I together put together this puzzle, and we do this in presentations, you'll hear it from my perspective, the things I'm just finding out. You'll hear it from Brie's perspective, things her family has always known. And our stories come closer and closer and closer together. And if you can't hear it from Brie, you're going to hear it from me. And together, We've even gotten people who are fairly conservative to say, wow, it's indisputable. And you get it from the perspective of an old, white, ex-conservative like me, fiscal conservative like me, or a young black radical like, like Brianna. Um, and we don't leave even a space for any question because we have the facts, we have the stories. Doesn't matter if you approach, if you can hear things through, through your logical brain, through your heart, there are many different paths of understanding and we can cover them all through all of this research we've done. We, we basically knit together all the elements that are needed. So <clears throat> I've had people come up after listening to one of our presentations and said, you know, I never really believed black people before when I heard these stories. I just thought to myself, oh, that's a bunch of belly aching. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. You, your life didn't go well and stop belly. Aching. I mean, this is how conservatives think. 
But when they hear Brie and me um, with the way that we explain the racial wealth gap in terms of our family histories, it's unassailable. It just is unassailable. And so we are able to open people's eyes, their ears, and even some people's hearts who you'd never imagine you could actually get to. Um, so, so that's what's so powerful about having opposite, combining, you know, um, we're as opposite as, as you could be. Very much so. Um, yeah. And I'll say too, even with us, with our presentations and our discussions centering very much on whiteness and blackness, um, with the work I do out here, um, we've got a museum that, um, that uses our work from the portal, um, and some other local groups here, um. So like usually Latinos or like even I had a, um, one of the indigenous leaders, like local indigenous leaders, where they were like, so if you're not white or you're not black, I'm still getting something from this, though. I like this. I like this a lot. And especially because at least um, when I'm riding solo, but even when we present together, then the Q&A section and usually people who came to the U.S. later in time to, whose ancestors came in the 20th century or after enslavement or even more super like hyper recent immigrants or are Asian, Latino, Hispanic, what have you, we pivot to the uh, the concept of complicity. It's like, okay, well, let's then talk about how within one to three generations, people see you as more American than I am, but my family's been here at least 220 years. How do you think that happens? Um, so we're still talking about whiteness. We're still talking about all of the things that enslavement and the dehumanization of Black people brought into being, you're just coming into it at a later time. You're, you're coming into it in a different uh, evolution of it. But you're still coming into it. And for a lot of ethnicities, you're still choosing whiteness over Blackness, knowing good and well, white supremacy doesn't like you either, which is a conversation I regularly have with Jewish populations, Ashkenazim in particular, where it's like, Nah, your ancestors got here and quickly realized they should stop speaking Hebrew. They need to learn English. And what they don't want to do is be treated like the Black people. So if that means dealing with the people, the white people that also hate them and getting as close to them as possible, they did it. <laughs> and exploited Black people via neighborhoods and businesses and what have you. And there's the records of businesses to show it. Uh, and, and so it gets into, it pivots into a different conversation. But the root of it is still the same. We recently gave, uh, through Reparation Circle Denver, um, a retreat for white wealth holders. And we sort of divide immigration into three waves. And we like for each group to be clear what they received as benefits from the previous generations. It's there's, there's a, a silver tray of benefits that white people amass and then pass on. They pass it on not just for your, your family and your descendants, but also to new immigrants coming in. There's a tray already there. They can enjoy uh, these benefits and that uh, Black people are essentially locked out of. You know, whether you're, you're of the group that were the founders of slavery in our entire economic system, or maybe you came later, but you received land grants, or maybe you came later and you got the GI Bill and uh, all, the, all the, the loans that allowed you to start a business. Each wave has different types of benefits, but they all snowball over 400 years. And yet we can prove through our life stories 
exactly how those things work and how my family has amassed wealth and Breeze has not has been blocked from any kind of, from that kind of economic progress. So, and also having, we have people tell their American prosperity story, especially I'm, I'm looking for white people. It's interesting when, yeah, we, we like to have both black and white stories. Uh, just it's so interesting. But how did your family arrive here? What were the conditions of the arrival? And how do you tell your prosperity story? Then we do something very diabolical. We say, okay, now if your family was black, how would that story change? Give me that same story back. And then people finally realize, oh, it really isn't about hard work. It isn't about hard work. It's about the color of my skin. So when I tell my story, I say, well, my, my Norwegian second great grandparents, um, my second great grandmother was a widow. She had four young children. She got on the, the ship from Norway and she was a washerwoman. She brought a tub and some clothesline. That was all she had. And she kept the kids. This is, you know, her family story coming generation by generation. Uh, and, and the kids, she tied the kids together with the clothesline so that they wouldn't get split up. And oh, and, and she arrived here in America and went out and found a job as a washerwoman and learned the language, eventually got married. And oh, when they bought some land and it's the American story. And then if I do the other example, I said, if my, if she had been black, she would not have been able to board that ship. Or if she snuck on there, she might be in steerage or with animals or whatever. She'd have to hide with her children. Once she arrived, and this is 1850. Okay. She arrives in 1850. She would be seized. Her children would be taken. They would all be split up and, and she would be sold into slavery. And there is no American prosperity story because you likely won't even be able to trace her family until you hit the 1870 and people end up in the census. So likely you can't even find her. She's been erased from our history. So I'd like people to look at their origin stories and recraft them and realize this isn't about hard work. Like when I look at my Norwegian family and their trajectory, they were here for nine years and got, got land grants, 160 acres. Yeah, nine years. So in nine years, they're more American than Bree's family, who's been here for hundreds of years. That's right. So we can give specific examples, comparing and contrasting the same era of history, the same, all of the same things. And my family ends up with wealth and Bree's doesn't. And so part of our contract of repair, Bree and I, is that I told her, look, we're lecturing on the racial wealth gap. I'm going to guarantee to you that by the time you turn 40, that you will have the same net worth as a white person with your educational background, skill set, all of that. I will make sure of it. And so we have essentially paid most of her educational debt off and she now qualifies for some work plans where the rest of it will be taken care of. So that's almost done. And last summer around Juneteenth, <laughs> very exciting, we engaged in, in housing repair and I uh, used a trick that the wealth holders use. I took out a margin loan so that Bree could actually purchase a condo. So she now is a homeowner. And so Bree, your net worth will be at or above where it should be as a white person by the time you turn 40, as you pay down the rest of it, as, as your educational debt disappears and you amass equity in this home. 
So we're, we're living proof that it, it, it works. It can be done. I would also like to add that this has been so, I mean, Bree has benefited, surely, but I think I've benefited more. It's been very, very healing for me when I consider what our connection may be over hundreds of years and that we've been magically brought together, that I can create healing for her and her family and that this will be passed down in some way. That makes my story of repair and my message to other white people far more strong than it would be otherwise. And I, I, my goal is to have other people follow in my footsteps and engage this way. Especially since with my mom, even just like a lot of my family is within 30, 40 minutes. A lot of them are either down the street or up the street. Um, but all of them getting to watch this in live time, they're like, and what? And then Bree's doing what? If she bought, well, she bought a place in this housing market, like trying to piece it all together. And for my mom, where she's just like, what is happening? How is this happening? Is this real? And so it's been a wild ride for my own family, too, where they're like, there's white people out here like this, despite the fact that we have lived around white people our entire lives, too. And so that the difference it makes in my life is obviously like financially tangible and noticeable, but even also just for the perspective of like my mom, my my dad, especially who's very different from my mom. But just for my family, they're like, is this what wealth looks like? And I'm like, not having student loan debt. Yeah, apparently that's what wealth, not having credit card debt. That is apparently what wealth looks like for us. And I think, um, I, I said that to Lottie at one point too, where I don't know what it was with the shift in my finances or maybe, I think maybe a change in job or something. Um, but I remember I texted her and I was like, is this well? Is this real well? And she was like, no. And I was like, it feels like it to me. It's really just more money in my bank account. So I'd only now work one job instead of three. But I'm like, this is, this is what wealth feels like. I just know it. Well, but what it really means is that with this burden lifted off your shoulders, you can do the community work that you are meant to be doing. You can write that book of the history of Black Annapolis. And maybe it's true that like in the next 10 years, may maybe you won't see the impact that you hope for because certain generations haven't gotten that genealogy bug like we have. But just think in 100 years, Somebody is going to be researching these things and they'll happen upon your book. I mean, this is the most important work to be doing is to really be telling the truth and recording these histories before they disappear. So if what we've done together allows you, you've gone from working three jobs, to which terribly underpaid jobs, working around the clock, not great health, to now working in your actual career for which you got your degree, you're working the State Department now, you're on track career-wise, you're not drowning in debt, you can travel now, and you can work in community and speak and do the work that you're meant to do. So that to me is what reparations, and by that I, I'm not referring to the National Program of Repair, which we all support. I'm talking about the element of direct repair that, that can only happen at the local and personal level. That's what it's doing. I mean, so you have the wealth of, of time and the wealth of using your skills to affect change and to benefit your family. And that that is true wealth. Well, and what's so moving and powerful and I think personally impactful about 
you two sharing your story so with so much depth is that it's counter this whole movement of erasing history in the name of white supremacy and and how as a consequence people can forget that we are history that history is a collection of our stories and so there is this moment of dissonance of like wait oh that really truly happened. I'm talking to someone who is a descendant, who is living proof of these legacies that we are still constantly living with on a daily basis. And it's just how, how powerful it is to erase history, to erase stories. And so that's why I, you know, so value and appreciate you too, the way that you are in the world and sharing your stories. The ripple effects are reaching so many people in so many different ways across uh, this country and across generations. It's amazing. Lastly, I'm just curious, what has been in your time working together, either with the portal, I mean, you're in the world in so many different ways and you're offering so much. So either through the portal, even with the workshops and your teachings, what has been a moment that was really moving either between the two of you from a participant that has happened through your family? What is one moment that has been impactful? What's been impactful for me is I even, I had someone even, and it happens honestly all the time. Somebody contacted me yesterday and just said, you've changed my life. This is a person who went through our wealth holder retreat. Bree did two. We we had seven sessions, and Bree did. Bree and I did two. Uh, we did our racial wealth gap training plus uh, talking about reparative genealogy. And this woman said, "You've changed my life. Everything has changed, and I'm completely changing how I am using my money, starting right now." I'm going to send a donation. So people are, people are transferring wealth. People are transferring skill sets. I had another person who said, okay, I'm ready. Um, I'm a grant writer. Can you connect me with African-American nonprofits that, who need help? The answer is yes. So one of the challenges white people face is that if, like me, you've lived in a white bubble your entire life and have no connections in any other community, even if you want to be of assistance, you have no way to do it. So we're gradually breaking down these barriers and <clears throat> helping people establish those inroads so that we can transfer our time, our agency, our money, and, and all these intangible benefits that we, the white people have, that we don't, we don't even know how to categorize until you begin to realize that these are benefits you know it's an unpeeling to be able to look and see all of those things can now be shared transferred in order to create beloved community so i get those messages a lot <laughs> and maybe i don't share them enough with brie with you um forward some of them especially i think because there's I know a couple of the last few that Lottie forwarded me, there were people that came in hot at first where they're like, you're not approaching this the right way. And this isn't true for me and my family. And what about this? And then like a month or two later, like circle back in the email thread and you're like, you know, I came on a little strong and I was a little wrong. I see the way y'all are doing this now and it makes sense. And I might even like it a little bit. 
And so I think for me, the part of this journey that has stunned me the most was getting asked to be a part of a parenting book, considering that Lottie and I are both childless and child-free people. Um, But really talking about the generational piece, you know, what is the legacy you leave for following generations? Not necessarily just your own children, but for all of the following children that come after and asking us about, especially when it came to the financial role that Lottie's played in my life as far as student loans, the the notion of kind of return on investment, I think is the term I use because even with growing up with a lot of white wealthy kids in this area, I look at what I do now and the brown and black kids, the, you know, the few of us that were in our private schools and uh, what we do and the commitment and how we're pouring back into the communities we're in, our home communities and wherever else we're living. Um, or are even our immediate families. And I look at what some of our classmates are doing and I'm just like, your parents invested almost half a million dollars in your education, at least a quarter of a million for K through 12 alone. And you are doing what? Um, whereas just in this short time period that Lottie and I have been in a reparative relationship She's seen whatever the return on her investment is. I got to, I get to physically live it. I'm um, saying the only other kind of stark, you know, shift for me was the first weekend that I had off because I had finally quit my last part time job, and I was like, "What do people do on weekends?" <laughs> because from age 14 to age was it 27, 28. I had been working two and three jobs, no matter if I was in high school, so still a full-time student, or in college and a, and a full-time student and working two and three jobs, or as an adult, working two and three jobs, not knowing what to do with only having to work one job, um, was uh, was the other big shift where I was like, what, what do I do now? <laughs> um, and, and then ended up, of course, being down the genealogy rabbit hole and I'm reading different nonfiction and history stuff, but really getting into this passion work and community work and stuff that we do because I finally have the bandwidth to do it. Okay. That's amazing. What I appreciate most, I mean, so many things. One, read the way that you have dove into the ancestry work really through just, okay, we're going to talk. It's an interview. Let's sit down. We're going to do this right now. Just having these piecemeal conversations. I know with my grandfather had been just so uh, you get little nuggets and a little nugget and a little nugget. But to really to get that oral tradition, the, the stories from mouth to mouth, you know, from heart to heart, you hear exactly what is real. What is a reality that is in our body through our family lineage, but also in the present. So, and nobody can say a word to them. I know when you drop that mic in the, in the cafeteria, I know that changed those people in that room. I know that. And only that deep work that you do, you both do, can have that effect. And also the reparations that it's not a donation, that it's not, oh, oh, let me help. Oh, yes, let me just unleash some of my pocket change. And no, this is money that we are do to to unpeel from us for our healing right 
And whatever is done with it is none of our business as white people. None of our business at all. And that's something we make clear to people, too, where it's like, you're not getting a receipt. This is not a tax write-off. That's not how this works. Once the money is out of your hands, you don't get to play accountability partner for the Black person of where, when, and what they did with it. I am being on accountability. So internally, in like intra-community, yes, it's like, this is to better your quality of life. Let's make sure we're doing that. You know, I know if you want to treat yourself, I'd be treating myself. Um, but, you know, this is the point of it so that you can get stable and, you know, be able to treat yourself more consistently and more. <laughs> um, but this is what it should be used for. But that is for Black people <laughs> to ask other of other Black people. And it's not for white people to do. Um, and so we make that clear um, to, to people as well. And they're like, so how does that work? You cough up the coins. I do with them what I do with them. And that's it. Line word. For the student loan thing. I had no problem giving Lottie my login. I'm like, here, because the only thing you can do is make a payment on it. Um, but otherwise, you know, if it's not that kind of setup, getting people to understand that part of divorcing yourself from white supremacy is that clinging to money and capitalism and how it's all intertwined in that. I want to add, though, there is a detail. I don't, I don't engage unless I'm also engaging I don't just provide resources. I provide knowledge for what to do with the with resources. So I don't tell people here, do this, but I educate and say, here is historically the information that has been withheld from you. So I don't give resources without strings. The strings that I give are knowledge. Okay, if you're going to do this, here's what you need to know to do it. Now you go do it any way you want, but here are the basics that your community has been historically missing. And here's how to not end up in financial trouble. Here's how to read these reports. I build little financial models for people who are working on their, their housing. I, I talk about how to save for reserves, for maintenance. All these things are skill sets that I've learned and I've had access to because I'm white. You know? And some of it, my family didn't tell me. And, that, and having to learn a lot of things by myself um, really brings home to me how important it is and how easy it is to mess up if you don't have the knowledge base. So when I compare notes with other white wealth holders, sometimes I'm pouting. It's like, well, nobody told me how to do that. I'm actually missing some of the benefits of white supremacy. But that's part of how I know what it's like to not know is because a lot of things were not transmitted to me through my family. So I've had to learn a lot of things myself and all of, all of those hard lessons that I've messed up, I'm now prepared to provide to other people in terms of training. In fact, I was involved in another reparative housing uh, project and the other white people in the group had a lot of skills and knowledge and that they were not sharing with the new black homeowner. And that person got into serious difficulty because not all the knowledge was shared. So I've seen things go really sideways and cause tremendous harm. So you have to share everything. We're, I, I'm not holding back. I'm sharing everything. It isn't just the money. This has been such a wonderful time with both of you. Truly such an honor and really appreciative of the way that you are sharing yourselves with the world and the impact that it's having. Please, to all who are listening, check out reparationsforslavery.com. 
follow Brianna Cuffey. Please follow Lottie Libdula. Reach out with questions, comments, stories that came up for you in listening to this wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you.